0: It's my privilege to be with you, and I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from which I'd like to read beginning at verse 18 and concluding the reading at verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you bow your heads with me in a moment of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and pray now that you will open our hearts and minds so that each one of you, us, may hear you speaking directly to us. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's a privilege to be with you this morning, and also greetings from Calvin Seminary. We are uh, in an exciting phase. We're, uh, we're in a transitional phase, and I'm going to start that transitional phase. Uh, well, let me back. The- back up. We're in an exciting transitional phase because our new president is from the Chicago area, uh, Jewel Maiden Blick. The second part of the uh, exciting phase is that uh, professors are going to start to retire, and I'm going to lead that off. This is my last semester. I'll continue as the uh, director of the Institute for... Uh, <clears throat> church, in, uh, global church planning and renewal, but I'm going to quit my teaching as uh, Old Testament professor. Senate has already uh, nominated my successor, Amanda Bankhausen. but next year some are going to retire, and the next year some are going to retire, so there's going to be a total switch at Calvin Seminary, so it will be an exciting time. Let me begin our meditation this morning by telling you a personal story. I'm a a Vietnam veteran, and that's a long, long time ago. I was drafted in 1966, but in 1968, on my way home from Vietnam, our plane landed in San Francisco. I wasn't married. I was single, and I thought, well, when will I see San Francisco again? So I decided not to go home right away. I got rid of my Army clothing, put on my civvies, and had headed downtown to San Francisco. That was on a Sunday. As I got downtown, I was met by some hippies. Anybody here remember the hippies from the 1960s? I mean, I'm a 60s child. I see there are some folks here too. But these were a uh, very special kind of hippies. We call them Jesus people. Anybody remember those, the Jesus people? I was met by a group of Jesus people, and they were carrying these big black card, blank posters as they were going up and down the street. And the poster said this, Jesus, yes. Church, no. Think about that. Just do what Alley Oop used to do in the time machine. You go back, how many remember the the comic strip Alley Oop? That was in the papers a long, long time ago. I remember that one yet, that tells my age, and also my reason for retiring, but anyway. (laughs) I'll be 70 this year, folks. (laughs) And just imagine that you are there, 1968, and that that board stares you in the face. Here you are in church, and if you're like me, I was basically born into church in the Netherlands. I was baptized. I, will, I don't consciously remember that. But I know that as long as I've lived every Sunday, I was in the church. And here I see a group of people saying, Jesus, yes. Church, no. How would you feel? Then I finally, after a long detour, because I just couldn't get used to the idea of not sleeping in the same place every night, I finally landed up in Calvin Seminary, like a Jonah, and I loved to read. And on the shelf there, I found the book of a French philosopher. And he intrigued me. He said, You know, Jesus went around preaching the kingdom, and what he got was the church. And the church betrayed Jesus like the Jews betrayed Moses. Think about it. He preached the kingdom. He got the church and then that Frenchman kind of put it up a notch and he asked this nasty question. Did Jesus want a church? Hmm. I started thinking, and I invite you to think with me, if I read the gospel of Mark, considered to be the first gospel, I don't find a word church. I know that in chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus preached The kingdom, he said, the kingdom is here. Would you all agree with me? I check my concordance. I invite you when you get home to do the same thing. You won't find the word church. You do that with the gospel of Luke. Yes, Jesus preached the kingdom. But you won't find the word church. You read the gospel of John. Kingdom, yes. Church? You don't find a word. So did Jesus want the church? And here we are sitting in church. But did Jesus really want it? Does that question make sense to you? It's only in the Gospel of Matthew where two, maybe three times we encountered the word church. Kingdom is all over in the Gospels. Jesus, without a doubt, preached the kingdom, and I think you will all agree with me on that, right? But what about the church? How would you, this morning, answer the Frenchman's question? Did Jesus want the church? Well, I say Yes. But it all depends on what you mean by church. What I read in our text this morning and what I gather from Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20 is this. Church is mission. The order that Jesus gave to his disciple on resurrection day was "Go." Make up The text that we read, read this morning basically says the same thing. It just says it in other words, and the phrase I put on my sermon title this morning was Each one reach one. It says the same thing. In other words, to boil it down to a very simple proposition. I will say yes to the Frenchman's question. If you define church as mission. Church is all about mission. And if it's not mission, it's a religious club. A nice one. But you know, as my wife and I were only reminded of le- this past week. There are people who joined the club and who go through all the motions, never shared the gospel, and sometimes even live contrary to the witness of the gospel. Church is mission. And if the church is not engaged in mission, whether here or abroad, it's a nice religious club. And I don't think that Jesus wanted that. The church has mission? Yes. Church's club? No. So let's look at our text so I can prove my case here. Paul begins in verse 18... And I invite you to have your Bibles open with me because I'm just going to go verse by verse here. I'm a believer in expository preaching. Paul begins in verse 18 with this statement. All this is from God. And in order for you and me to understand what he means by that, all this is from God, we have to look at the preceding verse which is verse 17, where we read the well-known words that every Christian ought to memorize. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Notice he doesn't say will be. It is. It's a new creation. The old has gone... Once and for all, and the new is here to stay. And that is a citation Paul is alluding here in his claim to Isaiah chapter 43. You may want to turn to that chapter with me. Isaiah chapter 43. And in verse 18 and 19, Paul reads this. Or the Isaiah says this, forget the former things, don't dwell on the past, see I am doing a new thing. Forget about the past. I'm doing something totally new. And in the book of Isaiah, particularly by the time we get to Isaiah 65, verse uh, 17, it is a new heaven and it is a new earth which in the book of Revelation, when you read it, and the author quotes those verses in chapter 21, may give us the idea that that's, oh yeah, when Christ comes back, that's when this is going to happen. And Paul just does something totally different. He says, look, if through your baptizing you died and rose with Christ, Romans 6, you already are part at new creation. It's here. The old has gone once and for all. And that new is here to stay. Who did it? Did you and I bring about that reality? Did we ourselves do it? No. Categorically, no. God did it. All this is from God. Who called us to faith in Jesus Christ, and because we are in Christ through our faith and in our baptism so that we died with Christ and we already were risen with Christ, we already are not new creatures, the new creation. That raises a question, if we didn't do it, if God did it, what did God do to make that come about? What did he do? He did this according to verse 18, and he repeats it in verse 19. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And if you look at verse 19, which is an explanation of 18, the scope of that is even broadened out further. He says that God was reconciling the whole world, not just you and me here in Elmhurst, Illinois, not just us there at Calvin Seminary, no, the whole world, not just Jews, not just Frisians, no, whole world, God is actively busy reconciling himself to us through Jesus Christ. Now the word reconciling is a very common term because we're used to church, you probably have heard it before, but what does that really mean? It's a word that comes from the marriage relationship. And every once in a while, marriages are strained, and some separate, and some divorce. But there's always a hope for an intermediary, a mediator that brings the two parties together. There is friction. Likewise, between us and God, things aren't good. We call it sin. We as human beings, and Adam and Eve, we sin, chapter 3 of Genesis. But God intervened, and he sent a mediator to establish peace. That's what Paul also describes in Romans chapter 5. He says that even while you and I were yet sinners, what did God do? He sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and me. To give us peace. Right? And that's what Paul also explains in our text in verse 21. In verse 21 he says, explaining how God made that reconciling, how God provided reconciliation, he said, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, it's the well-known fact that the basis for what God did to reconcile us and to make us what we already are in Jesus Christ, part of this new creation, God did it because he put all of your and my sin on his beloved son, died that excruciating death on the cross of Calvary. And soon we'll be celebrating Good Friday. And with excruciating pain, Christ cried out the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Paul says, now that's how he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Yes, we're sinners, but God in Christ doesn't count you and me this morning sinners. Put it all on Christ so that we are what we are, part of this new creation. Isn't that marvelous news? Isn't it good to hear that because of what God did in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are forgiven, and now we have a new life. We are participants in the new creation. And if I was preaching at my church in Camboriú, Santa Catarina, Brazil, everybody would say, Amen, Hallelujah, but then I'm among Dutchmen. My dad would never be able to say it cuz he's a Frisian. Frisians <laughs> <laughs> don't get emotional. <laughs> but that brings me to the question of why did God do that? What's the purpose of this all? It's the second part of verse 18 where he says that God did two things. God reconciled us, you and me, to himself through Jesus Christ, and that's where most Christians stop. Yeah, that's justification by faith. Oh yeah, that's us. But Paul goes on to say, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is to say we have to tell others about it. We have to tell others about it. And that's why in the following verses, Paul says, Given that reality, that in verse 19 he also says, That notice he reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He doesn't count your and my sin. Comes from Psalm 32. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Each one. or each one. That's our job, because as Paul says in the following verse, verse 20, we are therefore God's ambassadors. As though God were imploring through each of us through each one of us, you and me, to those in your neighborhood, to those at your job, who haven't yet heard the gospel, that God does not count your and my sin. It's our task to let them know and to say, hey, yes, we're sinners, but be reconciled. And that, I'm afraid, is we know our theology as Reformed Christians. But my experience has been, and continues to be even at Calvin Seminary, that, yes, we like the first part of verse 18. He reconciled us. He forgave us our sin. But how about that second part? And you can even read it in commentaries. The question then becomes, who is that us? Now, I believe that us is everybody. But there are those who say when, when in that second part, Paul refers to us, that's Paul and his team. And then to update it to today, that would be limiting to Pastor Greg, Pastor Matt, and myself. And myself, especially since I took that trip via Arulinas Argentinas to Brazil. I'm a missionary. But I'd like to propose to you this morning the following. If you like to be part of that first us, that God reconciled us to himself through Christ, by not counting our sins, because he put all of those sins on Christ, then we have to be participants also of the second one. He gave each one of us, not just seminary graduates, not just people that we send overseas and support with our monies, Each one of us should reach one, right? And here's why I made reference to that amen, hallelujah. What I found in my experience in Brazil, and you can find it also in Africa. You know, the churches in Latin America... The churches in Africa, the churches in China, are growing at a faster rate than the churches in the United States. As a matter of fact, the churches in the United States are not growing at all. Let me give you some statistics. Of the 350,000 churches in the United States, 80% have plateaued. Fifteen percent are only growing through transfer. And very few are growing through conversion. Let's bring that home to the... Well, let me give you some more statistics and then go to the Christian Reformed Church. Each year in the United States, 3,500 to 4,000 churches are closed. only 1,500 new churches are planted. That's 4,000 closing, 1,500 opening. Sounds like a losing battle to me. How about you? Huh? Just add up the numbers. In the United States, 72 churches are closed per week. Consider that with a strong influx of Islam in the United States. They're growing. If you come to Grand Rapids, not too far from the seminary is East Paris. There's a dying Christian Reformed Church and a flourishing mosque. Same road, almost next to each other. Let's look at the Christian Reformed Church. Of the 845 churches that we have, 533 are plateaued. They don't grow. And in those 533 churches, there is a decline of 25%. Now, why is that? I think for a very simple reason. As I said, down south in Latin America, the churches are growing. One of my former students, 12 years ago, started a church, and that church has already planted in 10 years 10 new churches. Why? it's just simply part of the DNA of that church, that each one should reach one. And when I I preach in that church and I say, as I said to you this morning, God doesn't count your sin, we've been reconciled, Christ takes it all upon Him. I don't even have to ask for an amen, hallelujah, I get it. And they get excited about it. And they bring in other people to hear it. And I can understand that because let me give you a human example here, more on a human level. Uh, After 2008, the economy hasn't been too good and homes are still... Well, the home industry is going up a little bit, but there's still houses in Grand Rapids, at least, in foreclosure. So imagine that I'm in one of those situations that my house is in foreclosure. Thank God it's not all paid for. But let's just imagine, right? And Monday morning I have to go to Fifth Third Bank, who held our mortgage, and I go there in fear and trepidation, and I'm going to see the manager. I'm trying to see what I can do. But I'm all nervous and everything, but I, I go there and I think the gal's name was Mary that we deal with. And I go and see Mary and she says up, hey, Carl, I got good news for you. And I'm not ready for the good news because I'm down, you know, I'm down, way down there emotionally. I'm worried. And she says, I got good news for you. The bank has decided to forgive all of your debts. It's done. No problem. You can keep your house. How do you think I'm going to leave that bank this morning? Like you folks are sitting here when I told you that all of your sins were forgiven? huh? You've heard those words so often in church that your sins were forgiven, you don't even react anymore. And I understand we're Dutch and Frisians, I understand that. But folks, that's the good news. We are sinners saved by grace. I'll tell you what, I'm going to get out of that bank with a smile on my face and tell everybody, boy, if you've got banking problems because of your house and foreclosure, whatever, now go see Mary at Fifth Third in Caledonia. She'll take care of you, right? That's what we all do. I already recommended a restaurant my wife and I went to last night. Greek Island, right next to the hotel. They said, I've never been at a Greek restaurant. Let's try it, and I'm glad I did. It was really good. I tell people about it, and you do too. When you've had a good experience or you got a good deal at a store in the mall, you tell all your friends. But the best thing that can happen to you and me the forgiveness of all of our sins, that we have really been commissioned to tell others because the second part of verse 18 said, and made us ministers of reconciliation. And Paul isn't limiting that to pastors and evangelists and missionaries saying that about each of us. If you really believe that your sins have been forgiven and that you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, so that as Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse one, we now have peace with God, you gotta let the world know about it because you are an ambassador of Christ. You've got a new identity. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I could do that in Brazil. Don't dare to risk it. I'm a guest pastor. Don't dare to risk. But how many of you have ever led another person to Jesus Christ? Think about it. The church that I began to pastor in Brazil was going to be closed by the Presbytery. But then they heard they could get this American missionary who needed two years of practical, he needed an internship. And he would be free. And the Presbytery said, let's get him because it won't cost us anything. The church is almost ready to close anything. What can this guy do more wrong than already has been done? So that was a win-win situation for him, right? They couldn't lose. those years I learned from the Brazilians. I didn't learn it at Calvin Seminary, unfortunately. But I learned from the Brazilians that each one ought to reach one. I trained each elder how to read the Bible, how to evangelize, and how to preach. And then other people through that church, the doors of which were going to be closed, God used that church to plant three new churches. And then when the presbytery saw what was happening, they made me the, the secretary of finances and planning to do that with the churches of all the presbytery because in 25 years, Presbytery had never started a new church. So I went to every one of the churches with the same message I'm giving you today. And I helped train them. And five years, the number of of churches in the Presbytery doubled. Didn't cost much. All it cost was a little effort on every member. Each one? Reach one. Simple, right? Just look around over here as I'm looking at you this morning. There's, there's room for some more here. Wouldn't you agree? There's room for more. I'll guarantee you that in the next five years, if each one reaches one, You're either going to have to expand this building, which I don't recommend, but you're going to have to start second faith. Just look around and look at the numbers. If each one reaches one, you're not going to have enough room for Sunday service. here. Would you agree with me? Right? But the flip side of that is this. Because we have room... it seems to me that not each one is reaching one. And that hasn't been our emphasis in the Christian Reformed Church. We think if we got a good pastor who can really preach, the church will fill up. And all we have to do on Sunday is sit there and listen and say whether it was good or bad. Critique the sermon. That's all my dad did. And you know what? Because what I call negative evangelism, too, my brothers aren't in church. Now, if he had used that same energy to share the gospel with somebody else, Mayfair Christian Reformed Church, of which we were members, and which is on the brink of deciding to close. That church would still be full. Would you agree? So in closing, may the Lord bless you as each one of you tries to reach one. Because God has given us gifts. And I know we all know how to talk. Well, what do we talk about? The best thing that's happened in our life that God it does, does last not the count the our sin.